Uh, if you have your Bibles, we're going to be finishing up today in Matthew 28. This is our last sermon in the Matthew series. And I um, want to invite you on our website there, the homepage, click on this Sunday. And there are some sermon notes we mentioned at the top that if you want to print those out, and there are uh, versions for both adults and children. So I would invite you to follow along uh, with those as we have some blanks to fill out. You can print those off if you have them. Otherwise, you can just uh, maybe key off of those and, and write your own notes if, if that makes it easier. Matthew chapter 28, hard to believe uh, that we're at the end of our Matthew series, and in November we'll start what we call Missions Month, and we'll be looking at the theme of discipleship. Today's message is called Show and Tell Part 2. So have you ever um, had one of those moments where you say, wait a minute, what on earth am I doing here? What on earth am I doing here? And this can be small or this can be big. You ever had that where you walk into a room and all of a sudden you're like, what? What? Why did I come in here again? Like, what was it? I was looking for something or I was going to say something to that person. And now I'm completely, what on earth? What in the living room am I doing here? Right? Um, or maybe you got into a prolonged argument with somebody and, and it, it's been days, weeks, or even months. And you're going all of a sudden, like, what are we even fighting over? We got so lost in the weeds, I don't even know what this is about. Uh, maybe you were doing some project and you had to stop and go, wait a second, where are we? Let's look at the manual, right? The guys are like, what's a manual? I'm a manual. Right? Not Emmanuel. That's a different word. We'll talk about him in a minute. You're definitely not him. Uh, at times, it's necessary as humans to stop and go, wait a moment, what on earth am I here for? What am I here for? And in the midst of this pandemic, and especially in this election cycle that's, that's rapidly coming, uh, we see these wars of truth and lies. And we, I, I don't know about you, but I can get so lost, so turned upside down, and it can be so helpful for me um, to do this with the Lord, to zoom back out and go, Lord, what is the point? What are we here for? What am I here for? And this morning, as we finish our 11-month-long journey in Matthew together, that's how I want us to start and not just zoom out and say, what's the point of Matthew, but even farther back out to zoom back on the whole Bible and on our lives and to go, wait a minute, what on earth are we here for? Because I believe that's the question that Matthew wants to answer as he concludes his gospel. Now, the answer, of course, starts with God. And we go back to the beginning. Uh, in Genesis 1, you remember when, when it says, in the beginning, God only God. God has always been there. He's already there. And what does he do? Four words in, he creates. He created heaven and he creates earth. And what we see as the author of everything, we, when we've said this before, the author has authority, authority, that he determines what is created and therefore he determines what the purpose of that creation is. So, we first live under God's authority, but then number two, we live for God's mission. God gets to tell us what we're here for, and, and Genesis 1, again, it answers this question. He says, God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. So what does that mean, to be created in God's image? It means the purpose of your life, the purpose of my life, is to image God. That we are to represent him here on this earth. And he unpacks this a little bit right here in Genesis 1. He said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. He says, I want to fill the earth. It started with just Adam and Eve. But I want you to fill the earth with image bearers who look like me, who rule with me. Which brings us to the second thing that he says, subdue the earth. 
rule over it. It's this concept of governing under God's authority. They were called to go out from Eden and make the rest of the world Eden-like to bring order to the chaos and to take care of this planet. Now, how are we to accomplish that? Well, this is the third thing. We're to live for God's mission and to live in God's presence. What was in the middle of the garden? See, the tree of life, which symbolized presence with God, life from God. And when John, in John 17, when Jesus defines what eternal life, what true life is, it's not just that we'll live forever. True life, the eternal quality of life is to know God. He says in John 17, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Real life. Eternal life is to know God, to walk with God, to, to rule with God. You and I were created for union with God himself. What an amazing truth. But of course, we all know that it goes quickly wrong. Adam and Eve failed to trust God's heart. They set up their own little rebel kingdom where they reject God's authority. They, they abandon his mission and they are, because of sin, separated from his presence and now live under the temporary authority of the rebel prince. But God, he promises the deliverer from the seed of the woman who will come and crush the head of the serpent that will defeat sin and death for mankind. And we know this that in this story from the nation of Israel that, that there is this king that's promised to come that will reestablish God's authority, God's mission, and God's presence with mankind on the earth. And that's what the book of Matthew is all about. The, the promised king has arrived in the opening chapter. We, we see this, we hear this angel who tells Mary of, of God in her belly. God is here with us. And last week we heard another angel's joyous report to two Marys. That Jesus has risen from the dead. Last week we saw that there was this come and see invitation from the angel. He is not here. He's alive. He said, go and tell. Go and tell his disciples Jesus. When he meets the two Marys, he says, go and tell my brothers. It's the greatest show and tell of all time. Now last week we looked at the show part. Come and see the empty tomb. Come and see the risen Savior. And this week we're going to look at the tell part to tell the world that Jesus is the King. Now we end our study in Matthew. We're going to see the King's message, the King's method, the King's mission, and the part that we play to tell the world. So let's do this together. Matthew chapter 28. We're going to pick it up in verse 11. This is the King's message, number one. King's message. Now, what did Matthew say Jesus' message was from the beginning? You remember when Jesus begins his earthly ministry as an adult in Matthew chapter 4. He, it says, from that time Jesus began to preach saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He says the king is here. The kingdom has come. And this is why we called our sermon series The King and His Kingdom. That This is about Jesus, God himself, coming to earth as a man to die for the rebellious sins of the world and to reestablish his rule with us on earth. Now, we see that the resurrection is Jesus' trump card to prove that he is who he said that he was. Now, now, last week we saw that the mission of the women is to advance the gospel and to declare that the message is true. Remember, they, they, the angel tells them that the tomb is empty because Jesus is alive. And then as they're running to go tell the disciples, they run into Jesus himself. 
They fall at his feet in worship. And what happens? Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee and there they will see me. Remember, that's what he had told them in the garden. Go, I will go before you to Galilee. And so the women are to tell him, this is true. The message is true. Jesus is alive. Go to the king. But then as way of contrast, we see this week that the mission of the soldiers is to halt the gospel, that the message is false. You see here in verse 11, while they were going, so as the women are going to tell the disciples, this is like in a movie scene, meanwhile, back at the ranch, so as they're going, we see the soldiers, they go on a mission as well. And these, these, the, the Jewish guards, they come back with their tails between their legs to the Jewish leaders. And it's like, well, this is awkward. Remember how we were supposed to make sure Jesus stayed in the tomb? It didn't happen. I picture this reenactment scene as they're telling them the story, like I'm listening from outside the window, and they're like, we were on guard, and the angel comes, and then we, and we fall over like dead men, and we're freaking out, right? And they tell them what had happened. Uh, verse 11, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. So they reenact the scene. We, we failed the mission. And in verse 12, what happens? Now they've got to clean up this mess, right? Verse 12, and when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel. So here again, this is that Psalm 2 language. That the nations, the leaders of the world take counsel. They figure out in their own wisdom, how are we going to deal with this situation? Verse 12 says, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers. And what do they give them money to do? They said, tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep this reminds me of judas right they come to judas with hush money and lies and likewise the jewish leaders they they come to these soldiers and they try to fix the problem with money and lies and what's interesting here is that what the guards had been meant to prevent the disciples stealing the body in the first place Right Now, they're meant to perpetuate this lie that the disciples stole the body, right? Which, of course, didn't happen, but that's what they're going to try to tell everybody to fix the situation. Now, look at verse 14. And if this comes to the governor's ears, remember Pilate, the Jewish leaders say, if Pilate hears about this, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. We'll take care of Pilate. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. At the time when Matthew was writing this, about 30 years later, this was still a wives' tale. So the Jewish leaders say, don't worry. If Pilate catches wind of this, we will protect you. We'll be your functional God. We can control this with money and lies. Matthew has been showing from cover to cover of his gospel that the Jewish leaders, they bow down to the God of self-reliance, of self-confidence. They're going to handle things their own way. So the question for us this morning is which message are we going to perpetuate? The women's message or the soldier's message? Jesus was very clear. He said, you're for me or you're against me. You're advancing my message or you're halting my message. You are gathering or you are scattering. And I don't know about you, but so often I am not, I am not advancing the gospel message by my words or by my action. And like the Jewish leaders, I try to take matters into my own hands. This is the God of self-reliance. This is us saying, man, I can handle things if I just have the right amount of money, the right amount of power, use the right words, if I have the right performance, if I tell the right lies, I can control my narrative. 
I can control how people see me. I can control how people hear me, how they accept me. And I try to become the king of my own kingdom instead of learning what it means to be a part of his kingdom. So this is the message, that he is the king, not us. So what's his method? How do we get on board with advancing the the gospel message? What's his method? Well, funny you should ask. Number two, the king's method. The the king's method. Um, When a team wins the Super Bowl, they're always asked the question, the the, the Super Bowl MVP is asked, what are you going to do next? And what's the answer? I'm going to Disney World, right? Except for poor LeBron James, who was in Disney World for five consecutive months in the bubble down there playing. So I bet he answered the question, I'm getting out of Disney World, right? I'm getting far away from Disney World. I imagine a reporter coming to Jesus here and going, you just defeated sin and death and became the eternal king of the universe. What are you going to do next? And Jesus would have exclaimed, I'm going to Galilee. What? Going to Galilee? Why would Jesus go to Galilee? Don't you mean Jerusalem? Like, wouldn't you want to, I mean, if I'm Jesus and I'm the king now, I'm marching into the capital, right? I'm coming up to those Jewish leaders with the nail holes in my hands going, how do you like them apples? I'm alive and I am the king. And I'm going to start karate chopping Romans and I'm going to set up my palace and I'm going to force people to serve me. Aren't you glad I'm not the king? Uh, I would start with the biggest place and the biggest names and exert my power and influence and authority. That's not what Jesus does at all. Verse 16 says, now the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. Remember, that's what he, he wanted them to go after his resurrection. Now, understand, and we've talked about this in our series, Galilee. Where is Galilee? Galilee is on the fringes of the land. It's backwoods. It's on the northern border, uh, mixed with foreigners, which they looked down upon. It was called Galilee of the Gentiles. And it was looked down upon by the big city slickers of Jerusalem and and some of the major metropolitan areas there. They would have been seeing, they would see people in in Galilee as uneducated, as unimportant, as dirty, as despised, as foreigners. Jesus doesn't start in Washington, D.C. He doesn't start at the capital. He doesn't start in 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 New York City, right? If If this is the United States, he's starting in Alaska, right? Amen. He's starting in the place where the president's elected before our votes are even in. And this reminds us about Jesus' method from day one, right? This is where he started his ministry. This is his upside-down kingdom. Where he said in the Sermon on the Mount, he said, I am coming to who? Who are blessed? Who are the first in my kingdom? It's the poor in spirit. It's, it's, the, it's, the, it's the leper. It's the, it's the prostitute. The despised foreigner, it's the outcast, it's the sinner. Why? He said it's the sick who are willing to cry out for the doctor. It's the humble who will receive me, not the proud. The Messiah ends his ministry where he started his ministry, in despised Galilee. This is where the kingdom message back in Matthew 4, this is where it started. In fact, where was he raised? Matthew 2, Nazareth. And the saying was, what good can come out of Nazareth? You remember Matthew's central aim is to show his Jewish audience that Jesus is the Messiah. And this fulfills prophecy. Isaiah chapter 9. It says that this light is going to come from a place of darkness. And he describes what is modern day Galilee in Jesus' day. And Jesus himself told his disciples in the garden before I die, or or, excuse me, after I die, he told them that before he died, that after I raise, I'm going to go before you to Galilee, meet me there, the mountain where he directed, verse 16 says. 
And so he goes back to Galilee, and, and notice it says it's the Gal- Galilee of the Gentiles. Remember, that's, that's, the, that's the, the Bible word for the other nations other than Israel. And this reminds us who Jesus came for. Jesus, the Messiah, came for all nations. And this is what he told the father of Israel back in Genesis 12. He said, through your offspring, through the offspring of the Jews, will come a blessing on earth for all nations. Not just the Jewish people, but for all nations. So he goes to Galilee of the Gentiles. And who does he send to Galilee? It starts with the 11. Notice what he says here. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee. Now, when Matthew says that, what hits you when you hear the 11? That's not 12. We know Judas suicides, and now there's 11. And this underlines their incompletion. It underlines their vulnerability, their limping nature, that these are men who scattered who, who hid, who abandoned Jesus when, when he would have needed someone by his side the most. And Jesus comes to these 11 to start his mission. And what do they do when they see him? Well, it starts with worship, but it also starts with doubt. Look at verse 17. When they saw him, they worshiped him. Here's Jesus alive. And as they run to him, reunited and it feels so good. They come over to Jesus and they wrap their arms around him. But it also says that some doubt. And I'm so glad it says that. Because I put myself in their sandals and I'd have doubts too. Like, Jesus, you died. And now you're, you're back? Like, are you a zombie? Like, what, what exactly is going on here? And one of the statements that I resonate most with in Scripture, when we talk about doubt, I love the man who says in Mark, he says, I believe, help my unbelief. I believe, but I've got a lot of questions, right? Uh, Jen Wilkins said that sometimes doubt can be sinful. When we're intentionally trying to discredit and undermine, that, that can be sinful doubt. But man, there can, there can be also doubt that, that is not sinful. This is, I want to believe but I'm on the struggle bus. Like, this is hard to wrap my head around this, to, to buy into this fully. The disciples needed time to process, and so do we. So let's not shame doubt and honest questions. In fact, for most of us, there's going to come this day, this crisis of faith, and if we put doubt on the shelf, it's going to come back to us. So it's better to talk about those things now in community with other believers who are also struggling with doubt. That's why we're here. And Satan, man, he he wants to keep us isolated. Satan wants to make you think you're the only one in history that's ever struggled with that thought or that doubt or that question. So come with honest doubt. And even if you don't get conclusions to all of your answers, what a gift to know that we're not alone in those questions. God doesn't spurn our doubt. He wants worshipers who will choose to worship him and struggle through the questions. So what's the king's method to grow his kingdom? It's not coming by force, forcing people to worship him. It's not going to the, uh, make a big old throne in the capital. It's with the very broken 11, back where he started in an unimportant corner of a country with unimportant people. I would say it like this. Jesus grows his kingdom slowly through humble worshipers in unexpected places. 
humble worshipers in unexpected places. But in the dark, what did Isaiah prophesy would happen? This one tiny candle will slowly but surely become a wildfire. That this mustard seed would grow into a tree and you and I that are gathered here in one fashion or another this morning are evidence of that light shining in this dark world. And what good news, because brothers and sisters, we are the church and we are very much the 11. The, the church is, is, is very much incomplete and broken and, and limping. And we've got a long way to go. And do you ever feel that as a parent or a leader or, or as an individual who goes, wait a minute, where are all the people with the right answers? Like, where are the adults I've certainly felt that as a leader in the church as we've gone through some difficult situations and, and, and recently through this pandemic, we're going, wait a second, where are the people who have it all together? Like, is this it? Like, we're the ones that are making the decisions. We're the ones that are, that are leading through this time. And our king is using ordinary people to do extraordinary things. Why does he do it that way? Well, Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians, we have this treasure in jars of clay, fragile and cracked. Why? To show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. God is doing amazing things. And it's on his power, not on our own. That's why he whittles Gideon's army down to 300. To show where exactly the power lies. I love the song, Shout to the North. It gets me teared up almost every time we sing it. The verse that says, rise up church with broken wings. And fill this place with songs again. Of our God who reigns on high. By his grace again will fly. This is the king's method to accomplish his mission. But what is that mission? Well, again, you asked the right question. Number three, the king's mission. Land the plane here, the king's mission. Now, if you've, if you've grown up in church, been around for a while, you've probably heard these last verses. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. So you've probably heard that this, this is called uh, by many the, the Great Commission. Now what does that exactly mean? The Bible, you know, if we use this phrase, it's talking about like a car dealer, someone who did very well and made a Great Commission. Like what, what exactly does that mean? Well, the, the way we would define it would be this, that a commission is an authorization or command to a group of persons, so someone with the authority to make a command to a certain group, to perform some duty, task, assignment, or instruction. So it's an authoritative command to perform a certain task, a, a specific assignment. So let's break down what that is. The first of all, the question is why? Like why should we do this in the first place? Why, why is there an authority behind the command? Well, we see here his authority, the king's authority. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore. The reason you go is because the one with authority has told you to go. You remember when Satan tempted Jesus back in Matthew chapter 4? And what does he do? He shows him all the kingdoms of the earth. And he says, if you will bow down to me, then I'll give it all to you. And this was a shortcut. This was around the cross. Without the suffering, you can have it all. All the glory without any of the pain. But Jesus said, I will bow to none but my Father, to his will. And he did it the Father's way. And so he receives the authority from the Father. It's been given to me. From who? From his dad. 
Now, Jesus, we know, Scripture tells us in multiple places that he himself is the creator of the universe. Hebrews 1, uh, verse 2, through the Son, God created the universe. It's through him he created all things. And nothing was created that wasn't created through him. And therefore, Jesus himself has authority over all of creation because he created it, right? It belongs to him. And now what Matthew is saying is Jesus is the author of recreation, That it's his perfect life that he's giving to us as access to the Father. And therefore, he has the authority. In his prayer in the garden, he says in John 17, Jesus looked up to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son so he can give glory back to you. For you have given him, what? Authority over everyone. He gives eternal life to each one you have given to him. So what we see here is Jesus is the giver of life, of new life, to be born again. He's the door. He's the king, the authority. So if you want to be in God's kingdom, you must acknowledge Jesus as the king of that kingdom. His all authority, not some authority, all authority, which means doing what he commands, which is what? What is the great assignment that the king gives to us? The what? What is his mission is to make disciples. Uh, verse 19, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Now next month, we're going to be talking, this is going to be the theme of our mission month, our purpose to make disciples. So we'll go more in depth into this uh, in November. But for now, what, what's the process of making disciples? He lays it out right here. Number one, he says baptizing them, baptizing them. The first step is to baptize, which implies evangelism. The good news, the evangelion, the good news of Jesus this is the initial, this is the, this is somebody saying, I believe, and boom, they get dunked, and they're in the family of God. Now, this word baptize uh, primarily was used when they were talking about placing cloth into, into um, a vat of dye. So you remember back, and we used to go to Bible camp, and we would make tie-dye t-shirts, because it was the 1990s, and that's what you did. And so we made, we were dipping this cloth into the dye, and there's two thoughts that come from this. The first one, the word baptize means to place into. So symbolically, when we're placed into the water, it represents this placing into. And it also means to identify with. So that cloth is now identified by the new color of the dye that it was placed into. It's identity. So a new believer is placed into the water symbolically because they now have a new identity. And what is the identity? What are they identified with? Well, he says what we're being baptized into. Baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. In the name of. See, in the ancient world, someone's name was associated with the core of who they were, their attributes, and their character. And so what we see here, when we're baptized, we're baptized into the name of, into the very character of who God is himself. The three in one, Father, Son, and Spirit. And the life that Christ gives us is the very life of God. His character, his attributes now become our identity. And then number three, what, is, what does this look like? He says, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. This is teaching to obey, teaching to obey everything. What did he just teach? Well, we just read five major sermons from Jesus and Matthew. And just like an infant, um, they, have, at, at, they have new life, right? They have the DNA of their parent. But it takes time to learn and to grow, to become what you already are. And as one who is baptized into the name of the Trinity... We have God's very DNA. His life and his character is in us. But there's a process of becoming what we already are. 
He says we've got to be taught because you can't obey what you don't know, right? There's a teaching, a humble learning in this process. And you obey what you're taught, not just knowledge, but you put it into action to become like King Jesus, to obey King Jesus. Now, if you notice, if we're tracking here, this is all a connection back to God's original intent for us in the garden. Remember when we asked, what are we here for on earth? Well, this this goes back to his original intent, that we are now under the authority of the author of our new life, King Jesus, back under God's authority and back on God's mission. And what did he say the mission was in Genesis 1? To be fruitful and multiply. And here he says, go into the world and make disciples of all nations. That's what we're doing. We're continuing that original mission, making people, turning disciples, image bearers of the name and the person of Jesus. And he also said to rule and govern, rule and govern. And our job in Jesus' name, under his authority, is to bring life to those who are dead, to bring order to what is sinful and chaotic and broken. Under Jesus' reign. This is the great assignment. The great commission. Back to what God originally created humans for in the first place. And this is the assignment for all of us. So the question is, are you on assignment? Are you a disciple of Jesus? Are you making disciples of Jesus? This is not optional. So he sends his church out on mission. The broken 11 to slowly bring light into the dark. But this time it will not fail. Why? Why? Why won't it fail? Because of the how. The how. How do we accomplish this mission? Well, Jesus is king, and he goes with us. He goes with us. His presence. Notice how he says in verse 20, And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is so beautiful that Jesus, I love how Matthew ties this perfect bow on the end of his gospel. That God created us for relationship, perfect union with him. In the garden with Adam and Eve, he has sustained them by his very presence, by the tree of life. And ever since they rebelled and they were banished from the garden, from God's presence, God has been on this faithful rescue mission to bring us back with him. And this is how Matthew opened his gospel with the beautiful news that a baby was born. And what was his name? It says... Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. This is the witness in God's heart in the gospel. And this little boy, he grows up into a man. He's the only man who's ever perfectly obeyed God, perfectly represented him as an image bearer. And that man died in the place of all the other imperfect image bearers and then rose to give those sinners his perfect life so that we could once again bear God's name, bear God's image, and be with him. And their king needed to reassure them because what's about to happen? What's about to happen? He bookends this with God with us, the baby, God with us, his presence. He's about to say, I'm with you always, and then flame on. He leaves, right? Messiah out. Wait a second. You just said you'd be with us always, and you leave? But what does he say in Acts? He places, baptizes them into his very spirit. He places his spirit, his life into his followers. He said, it's actually better that I go and I send you the spirit. I'm not leaving you. 
Because he knows that we're going to have doubts. And he says, I want you to look at me. As faithfully as my father stayed with me on my earthly mission, so I will faithfully stay with you on yours until the end. I promise. I'm here. I'm with you. So we today, we go out. We are under Jesus's authority. We are on Jesus's mission. But most importantly, we now live in Jesus's presence. And, and do we really believe this? Do we really believe this? Do we realize this? That you and I were created for and then saved and recreated for when we rebelled, not just to a set of be- doctrines to believe, not just a distant God to do his bidding, but for intimate oneness, union with God himself. And right now that we see that spiritually until he comes back and then we get to be in the physical presence of Jesus again. Come, Lord Jesus. And Matthew closes his magnificent gospel with this magnificent promise of King Jesus' presence with us until what? To the end of the age. The end of the age. What does this imply? He's coming back. This current age that you and I are living in, it's temporary. He's coming back to make all things right as the king, to judge the living and the dead, and to rule and reign with us over creation for the rest of time. An age of which there will be no end. So Matthew, maybe this for you is a wait, what am I doing here moment. That you zoom back out on your life. and you go, What am I doing here? Let me do some heart work. I'm going to ask you a couple questions. We'll be done. So what part of your life are you struggling to or failing to bring under the authority of Jesus? Maybe this is at home with the family. Maybe this is at work. Maybe this is in the arena of politics as we near this election. Maybe it's been with the pandemic. Where do we see that we're, we're building our own little kingdom of self-reliance instead of living under the authority of Jesus and saying, I will do whatever you say to do. My word and my action and my thought life. Where do you find yourself off Jesus' mission? Are we evangelizing? Are we, are we preaching, proclaiming the good news of Jesus to those around us through word and deed? Are, are, are we becoming like that die in, in the vat? Are we, do, does are the fabric of our life look like Jesus? Are we, are we learning and are we obeying and are we inviting others into that same process? And then finally, are we living in the reality of Jesus' presence? What practices, what practical things are we doing to live in his presence? Are we creating spaces in our day and in our week to, to be with him, to recognize we are with him? Are we spending time in his word, listening, or speaking to him, just like any other relationship? Are we going on a walk with Jesus this afternoon to simply sit and be with him, to meditate on the reality that he's here with you, and that you're walking through this world with him on mission, under his authority, in his presence? The beauty of the gospel is God is with us, and he will never leave us to the end of the age. Father, we thank you. We thank you for the authority of Jesus. I know we hear that word and a lot of times we we think of the negative connotations of a a heavy-handed dictator, but we know know the way that Jesus showed his authority, not by forcing it on people, but by giving his own life. And he humbly and gently but authoritatively beckons us into his kingdom. 
that we would live our lives under his authority and live on mission, that we as a church were going through a crazy time, that we, but this would not distract us from the mission, that no matter where we are or, or, or what life currently looks like, the mission is the same, to make disciples that know you, that obey you. And Father, that we would live in light of your presence, that we would be those who walk with you, who are satisfied with nothing less than the very person of Jesus and a relationship with him to taste and see that you're good and invite more people to the well, to the waterfall of your grace and your presence with us in Jesus. Thank you for him, that he made a way possible to be with you again. So Father, we want to go in your name, under your authority, on your mission, with your presence. It's in the authoritative, present name of Jesus that we pray these things. Amen.